Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental film review podcast with me Dan vehemently complaining about how cold it is when it drops below 20 degrees Celsius in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, digging out the waistcoats for that in-between temperature stage in spring in Cambridge, UK. Mm. Uh, In this podcast, we mainly discuss fantastical films, horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, because when you stir blood, fusion reactors, and magic potions in a pot, it's bound to produce something delicious. Mm. (laughs) Hello, Conrad. (laughs) How are you? I'm very well, yes. Thank you. How about you? Yes, very well. Staying barely on top of my projects. Just finished (laughs) a short film today. Uh, The director was happy, so that's always a good thing. That's good. (laughs) And just tying up all these projects before I go to New Zealand for 10 days Mm. for a little bit of a holiday. So you're exploring any parts of New Zealand you've never been to before, or have you pretty much seen it all? Uh, well, actually, I'm I'm from Wellington, which is in the North Island, and for a while in my childhood, I lived two years in the South Island. So we travelled around the South Island quite a lot, uh, but not the North Island. But this time... We are going to be traveling around the South Island again (laughs) because there's a wedding we are actually attending, which is in the South Island. So it's still great traveling around places I haven't been to since I was about 15 years old. So, yeah, it's still exciting. Yeah, I bet it's all changed anyway. Yeah. Oh, or it's exactly the same (laughs) because it's New Zealand. Sounds fun, though. I'm very jealous. And and how about you, Conrad? How have you been? Oh, I've been fine, yes. I'm just recovering from giving a presentation at work to over 100 people, which was Ooh. terrifying. Impressive. <laughs> but it seemed to go down very well, which was good. And I've taken on an interesting challenge. I bought myself a box set for phase one of the Marvel movies, mm. and I'm going to try to watch them. Wow. <laughs> They're not all good. (laughs) (laughs) No, my brother was suggesting that I should try to sidestep Thor, but I feel like I should have the whole experience. So I'm starting with Iron Man, Uh and I'm going to see if I can get through the whole thing and catch up to Captain Marvel or whatever. Oh, wow. That's like, what, 21 movies or something? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, something like that. And actually, one page that I was looking at was suggesting that I need to watch 18 different Netflix series as well. So... (laughs) Ah, well. God help me. <laughs> well, good luck with the, with phase one. Yes, I'm I'm sort of looking forward to it. I want to see what all the fuss is about. See if I can stay awake. Should be good. <laughs> so what film are we going to be looking at today? Well, um, I will waltz on over to the oubliette to find out. <laughs> mm. Okay, just buy the oubliette. <laughs> Whoa, it's just flooded with water. Mm. Where did this come from? Yikes. And what's this? Oh, who in there? All the other movies died of food poisoning when they had the seven loose. Oh, I guess I only have one choice this time. Okay, closing now. Ah, I'm back with a very wet movie. <laughs> and the only survivor of a botulism outbreak. Yes. <laughs> it is the 1989 Australian film Dead Calm, uh, directed by Philip Noyce. Written by Terry Hayes, uh, the screenplay, and adapted from a novel by Charles Williams. So what happens in this movie and who's in it? Uh, It stars Nicole Kidman, Sam Neill and Billy Zane. I I guess his precursor to Titanic in terms of oceanic movies. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of luck on boats. (laughs) (laughs) No, apparently not. So this film centres on a married couple, John and Ray, who go on a sailing trip to escape the traumatic loss of their son. Whilst cruising the Pacific, they encounter a sinking ship with only one sole survivor, the suspicious Huey. 
Welcoming the hapless man on board, John goes to investigate the sinking ship to find out the disturbing truth about the other crew members. In John's absence, Huey knocks Ray out and takes over their boat, leaving John stranded. How will the helpless Ray overcome the unpredictable and abhorrent Huey? How will John return to Ray on a sinking ship with barely any radio communication and an incoming storm? Let's find out after some heavy breathing. Wow, we'll be right back. So, welcome back. We're here to talk about the 1989 psychological horror thriller Dead Calm, starring Sam Neill, Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane. And we have a couple of anniversaries here because this is our 25th episode. Ooh, yeah. Quarter of a century already. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised you haven't got sick of me yet. (laughs) No, I'm loving it. And also, this is the 30th anniversary of Dead Calm. Mm, What a coincidence. I know, it's almost like we planned it. (laughs) Yeah, it's the anniversary of the release of the film in the US, but actually it was released in May in Australia, which I think is a bit mean, seeing as Australia made the movie and then they don't get to see it first. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot, actually. Same with New Zealand. Does it? Yeah, I mean, I remember when, uh, I think it was a Lego movie came out and it was made in Sydney. Mm. Uh, A a lot of animation was made in Sydney. uh, And then it didn't come out in Australia for another like five months or something ridiculous like that. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we always get the last screening. So I saw this movie first on rental VHS back when it was originally released. You had never seen this movie before. No. Is that right? No, I never. I didn't even know uh, prior to watching this, I didn't know it was an Australian film. Ah. Even though it's got two very well-known Australian actors in it. (laughs) I just assumed it was an American film. Yeah, Billy Zane, the sole yank, is pretty much a third wheel in this movie Mm. in in every sense. (laughs) Yes. Indeed. So over to you. Uh, let, let's get your first impressions. What did you make of it, having never seen it before? I would say, I mean, plot-wise and just the film itself was a very resourceful film. Mm. The whole story was pretty much entirely on technically two boats, yeah. but mainly focusing on one boat. And they utilized that boat amazingly. And I was very gripped the entire film. Like, it was a very engaging film and you were just constantly wondering what's going to happen next how's ray played by nicole kidman going to overcome huey the crazy uh, american Mm. and because she was kind of a i guess i hate to say it but like the weak female character but she wasn't at the same time she was very very resourceful and and constantly thinking on her feet and constantly trying to find solutions for yeah getting out of that situation yeah It's amazing, her tenacity and her resourcefulness. I think that's the right word, resourceful. But the film really takes advantage of a claustrophobic single setting in the middle of nowhere. They're isolated, they're on this boat. It's only dead calm for some of the movie. A lot of the movie, there's a horrible storm happening. That's true, yes. (laughs) It's really tightly wound, actually. I'd forgotten just how frightened you feel for Ray in the situation that she's in. After the first act of the movie where we introduce Billy Zane and he comes aboard with this crazy story about all of the other shipmates on his ship are all dead because they got food poisoning Mm. and he goes for a snooze. And Sam Neill doesn't believe him, John Ingram rather. And John rows out to the Orpheus, which is the boat that uh, Billy Zane has come from, to see what's what. But in the meantime, Billy Zane wakes up and he gets extremely nervous about John discovering the truth. So he commandeers the ship, beats Ray unconscious and sails off, leaving John behind on a sinking ship. (laughs) Yeah. So it sort of splits into two movies. One of them is Sam Neill as John Ingram trying to stay afloat on what's left of the Orpheus, which is a pretty tense and exciting situation in and of itself. 
Uh, reminded me very much of another movie that I love called All Is Lost, starring Robert Redford. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't. It's really cool. It was made very recently. It's, it last five years or so. And it's Robert Redford at the age of 80 or whatever on a sinking ship on his own in the middle of the ocean trying to survive with practically no dialogue because he has no one to speak to. So it's just Robert Redford alone on a ship swearing. And that's it. And <laughs> right, it's yeah. Riveting. It's really good. But this movie sort of switches between John's attempt to survive and Ray's attempt to try and figure out exactly how dangerous Huey, Billy Zane's character, really is mm. and how she's going to extract herself from this situation. And it has to be said the couple are actually trying to recover from a traumatic experience in the first place because the very beginning of the movie is a horrible car accident where their infant child is killed. Mm -hmm. So they're actually on this yacht to sort of repair their lives and then Huey happens to them. Mm. So it's a test of these two characters' metal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what I loved about this movie, and I actually watched this movie with my wife and she pointed this out that even though Nicole Kidman, uh, Ray, is, is the female and is the weaker character in comparison to Billy Zane's Huey character, she really overcomes that weakness mm. and she overpowers Huey and manages to knock him unconscious, which is such an amazing thing to see in a film. And the movie kind of was going in a direction where you kind of expected Sam Neill to come back onto the ship and to save the day, and Ray was the damsel in distress. But it didn't do that, and no. she managed to figure it out herself, and it was really great to see, apart from the ending, of course, which just ruins everything. But <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you disregard the ending, I would say it's, it's a pretty perfect movie in terms of characters and development of characters as well. Like Ray's character, yeah, she was incredibly traumatized by the loss of her son and mm. she was a wreck at the start of the film but because of that vulnerability she was able to survive and triumph in the end yeah and it's interesting that not only does she outwit and overpower huey despite him being extremely cunning and manipulative and frightening she also manages to rescue John because John doesn't get back to the boat to rescue her. Exactly. Yes. He is drowning and she knows that he is because he's contacting her over the radio, just clicking the on-off button because that's all he can get through because it's all malfunctioning. So he's mm. just doing Morse code on this, this switch. So she knows that she has a time lock that she has to defeat she's got to get back to john within six hours or whatever otherwise he will die she's got to overpower this guy who is very dangerous and she manages to do both so she, it really is nicole kidman's movie yeah 100 percent. i would say that the least important character is actually sam neill <laughs> yeah he should be third build really in this film mm. but he's not he's like first i think but yeah and also worth mentioning that there's also this massive storm happening as well mm. so she's had to escape this terrible man as well as commandeer this ship through a huge storm to save her husband who is about to drown <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's incredible hurdles to overcome, and the payoff at the end is so exhilarating. Yes, I was almost jumping for joy at that moment. And the thing that I particularly love about her coming to John's rescue rather than John coming to hers is this is even reflected in these two mirroring moments from the beginning and the end of the film. You have one scene where John is visiting Ray in the hospital after the car crash where their son dies. And the doctor is shining a light in her eyes and her pupil is fixed and dilated. And John is talking to her because the nurse says, talk to her. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, Ray, come back to me, stay with me. And she is unresponsive. And there is this sense where you go from that to the beginning of the story proper that she really hasn't come around yet. She hasn't returned to life at all. 
and you have the same scene where John is adrift at sea on what's left of a raft he's created after he's burned the Orpheus in, <laughs> into the sea. Mm. And he is just drifting along, he's unconscious, and she is shining a light into the darkness trying to find him, and she actually manages to revive him and rescue him and pull him on board. So she is not only able to rescue herself, she's able to rescue him in a way that he was unable to for her. So it's an incredibly empowering story for this female character, I think. Wow. <laughs> I, you, have, <laughs> you have found details and comparisons in this film I did not even think about. Wow. <laughs> Huey's character, Billy Zane, very unpredictable, Mm. very kind of, yeah, like you said, manipulative and almost maniacal. He doesn't really make any sense. No. Yeah, you can't predict what he's going to do. And I love villains or antagonists like that. Mm. It's frightening. There were so many scenes where Ray was talking on the radio to John that I expected Billy Zane to just be lurking in the corner or listening in. They kind of played with that sort of horror element in terms of where is this guy? Where is he now? Is he listening? Does he know anything? Mm. All this while, Ray's trying to put these plans together. She's got a shotgun. She's like drugged his drink and all of this stuff. And you're constantly just wondering, does he know? Mm. Has he found this? Has he found that? And it's very, very tense throughout. Yes, you're really worried for her the whole time. That's the thing. And I think although it's a trope of these types of movies to have a woman in peril as spectacle, as something that you're meant to enjoy, I don't think it's gratuitous in that way. And even the moments where she does have to submit to him sexually. It's not actually a submission. She's manipulating him. It gives you a fragile woman who is fragile for a very good reason, who through the course of the film has to really dig deep and find resources that she didn't know that she had. You're worried for her, but you're cheering along with her when she's successful. So it's very effective in the way that it does that. And yes, Billy Zane, hats off to him. He is batshit crazy in this movie. (laughs) Yes. But in a completely believable way. He's not chewing the scenery necessarily. But his motives are never really explained. Even when you see when John's on the Orpheus and he's watching these home movies of what happened on the Orpheus, he's sort of ranting and raving at the other people on the ship with him and complaining all the time. When he describes it to Ray, he's just talking about they were trying to kill me as though he's paranoid. They were trying to steal my light. Mm. It's not made clear exactly what his problem is. And I was reading several criticisms of the film that the screenplay writer, Terry Hayes, in stripping the original novel's five characters down to three. Oh. Yeah, so there were five characters originally. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so on the Orpheus, John discovers the skipper... And Huey's wife, I think, still alive. And all of his psychology is sort of explained by his wife and his reasonings and what happened. Hmm. Pairing it down to three characters, the criticism was that he doesn't fill the void because Billy Zane's character's psychosis is never explained in any detail. But I actually think that's one of the film's strengths. I think the worst thing that anybody ever does in a horror or psychological thriller movie is try to boil down its character's psychosis as though that's even something that's possible. It's like when Rob Zombie did a remake of Halloween and the first half an hour of it is, let's find out about Michael Myers' terrible home life. Mm. I don't want to know that. That completely (laughs) demystifies this iconic shape that is just a focus of irrational fear. I don't want to know what makes him tick necessarily. Mm, 100% agree. I find when horrors over-explain killers, Mm. it loses its mystery. I mean, obviously, when things are too ambiguous, then it's just nonsense. But having a little explanation is all you need. And I felt like Dead Calm did it well. I thought his character wasn't too crazy. 
he was still a human being. Mm. He still had needs. Yes. But he was still unpredictable enough to be just really, really terrifying. Yeah. One minute he's charming, the next minute he's beating you to the ground. It's scary, isn't it, when you can't tell what somebody's going to do. And he is a charming, handsome guy. Yeah, he is. And kind of lovable. You've got moments where he's sort of dancing on deck to his low production garage music. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Also, uh, just changing topics a little bit, talking about the other character, the third character, um, John, who is in immense peril Mm. on the sinking ship. He manages to somehow get it working and he pumps the water out, but then a storm hits and he's pumping and pumping is just not happening and the water's rising and he's at a critical moment. The water is up to his neck and he's going to drown and he's trying to push this door open because this mast had collapsed on it from the lightning strike. And I think he accidentally dislodges a pipe mm-hmm. and then he's breathing through a pipe. It's just level after level of like even more peril. And I felt so tense when he's underwater mm. and he's just breathing through a pipe. What can he do now? He is screwed. And then a fish turns up and I just crack up laughing. Because <laughs> <laughs> Sam Neill's face when he sees that fish is priceless. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it took me a moment to realise what it meant, but of course it means if a fish can get in here, then there's a way out. Exactly. (laughs) I had to rewind because I was laughing too much, but yes, it did did mean that there was a way out and he did manage to find a way out. And yeah, again, there were so many moments in this film where I I was really cheering for the characters Mm. because there was so much danger. Yeah, and I think what helps with that is Sam Neill's screen presence because he is just such an instantly likeable guy. Even though his character in this movie is fairly stoic, you never see him particularly demonstrative about the loss of his child, but you still feel for him because you can see it sort of bubbling underneath, but you can also see him trying to stay strong for Ray and trying to help her... He's such a resourceful, stoic figure who just keeps going that you can't help but root for him. And I was wondering if this is his big breakthrough, this movie, because I can't think of anything he'd done before this that necessarily got the same level of attention internationally. I mean, I remember him being the Antichrist in Omen 3 in 1981, but that's not necessarily going to win over a mass audience. I mean, I've always found Sam Neill kind of one of those actors that's always just bubbling under the surface. He's doing all of these great roles. The only big movie I can really think of him being in is Jurassic Park. Yes. Um, he's He's been in a lot of films, though, and, and a lot of very cult classic films. Like, I can think of Possession and The Mouth of Madness. Mm. Like, these are bizarre films. And then he does Jurassic Park. And I don't know. I, he's always been one of those actors that has never really strived for a, a huge amount of stardom. He always kind of picks a lot of films that are smaller, lower budget, indie films. He's also in Hunt for the Water People, Mm. directed by Taika Waititi, which is a New Zealand film. So he never strays away from independent cinema. No, and he's always brilliant and he's always subtly different in everything that he does. He's really an unsung hero, I think. He is a very, very good actor. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Also, I wanted to mention Nicole Kidman turned 20 in this film. So she was very young, and that role that she played for this is phenomenal. Mm. It's a tour de force for Nicole, and it's probably the reason why this sort of launched her internationally, because straight after this she was hired to be in Days of Thunder, which is where she met Tom Cruise, who ended up being a fairly significant figure in her life. Mm, She's in sort of 80% of the film she is in, and she's in really tough situations, and... She has nowhere to hide in terms of her performance in this movie. I mean, and she really gives it her all as well. I mean, both acting-wise and and physically. There's some very revealing scenes Mm. uh, where (laughs) I didn't know that Nicole Kidman did things like that. Like, she really gave it her all and it really paid off. I guess we have to talk about the ending. So... (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned it before, but the ending really ruins this film. And 
I read that the studios wanted this ending. This was not the original ending that Philip Noyce had planned. It's such a finely tuned machine, this movie. It's so obvious that this ending has been added because this three-act structure of the film is so perfectly drawn with a sort of prologue that introduces their trauma, then the first act leading up to the point where the two are separated and you have that overhead shot of uh, the Saracen, which is John and Ray's boat with uh, Huey and Ray motoring off over the horizon, leaving John behind. And it, there's this, the first music cue, I think, comes up there and it fades to black. Then you have act two, which culminates in John figuring out that he's got six hours before he goes under and the um, generator being flooded and all the power going off and all of the screaming voices on the VHS videos of what happened on the Orpheus with Huey there, the dastardly Huey. And that sort of comes to a close with her knowing that he's going to drown and him knowing that he's going to drown and her realising she's got to do something about it. Again, music cue, fade to black. And then the third act, which is Ray overcoming Huey, overcoming the storm, finding her husband and rescuing him and pulling him aboard and saying, we're going to be okay now. And it fades to black. And that so should be the end of the fucking movie. (laughs) Because it's perfect. And then up comes another scene and you think, what the fuck is this? This slasher movie coda where Billy Zane's character, who was just put in a raft, Ray didn't kill him. She put him on a life raft and just pushed him off into the sea Yes, for the fates to befall him. Whatever happens to him, she doesn't care. And so they go back and find it. I guess that's responsible. He's not there. And then you see a blood smear up the side of the boat because he's climbed aboard. And then you have the whole Ray being attacked and Sam Neill coming to the rescue. And yeah, and it's so clearly added on afterwards. I wrote down this is tacked on. And then, yes, as you say, I I read the background and the film was finished with the three act structure that I described. Mm -hmm. And then they showed it to a preview audience and the American preview audience said, but he's still out there. We've been cheated. We wanted a finale. He should come back. So they went back. One interview I read, Philip Noyce said it was a year later. Wow. Another source I read said it was six or seven months later that they went back, hired the Saracen again, got all the actors back, went out to sea and filmed that piece of shit (laughs) slasher (laughs) movie ending. Yeah, obviously I hated it because the whole point of the film was Ray a female character overcoming a male character and also saving her husband, and she was the hero of the film. Mm. Having the tacked-on ending where she's getting choked by Huey and then John comes to save the day, it's just a slap in the face. Yeah. It's, it, you might as well have just slapped Nicole Kidman in the face. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was not the hero. And by the way, we have to explain exactly what happens as well to listeners out there. Mm. This is the most ridiculous ending I have ever seen in a film, <laughs> ever, ever. Like, I was on the floor laughing and holding my stomach because I could not believe what I just witnessed. So, Ray's getting choked by Huey, and John grabs a flare gun, he shoots it through the sail of the ship, and it, I think it goes into the mouth of Huey and his all the orifices on his head just light up like a, a sparkler. And it's, it's, it's indescribable how they could come up with something like that. It's almost like the studios came to Philip Noyce and say, hey, we need a better ending. And they were like, no. And then they said, no, we need one. And he said, okay, fuck you. I'm going to put the most ridiculous ending I could possibly think of because that's what it felt like. A complete middle finger to the studio to say, here's your ending, motherfuckers. (laughs) Yeah, it's the only explanation that makes any kind of sense because you end Act 3 with the couple clutching onto each other. Both have sustained multiple physical and emotional wounds and traumas. But then you cut back and... 
she's having a swim. She's talking about mangoes. <laughs> he makes this lovely breakfast for her on a tray after sudsing her hair yeah. and she's stretched out on the deck, sunbathing in her skimpy, skimpy 80s swimwear. Mm-hmm. And... It's like, would they do this? These aren't the characters that I've been watching for the last 90 minutes. They would not do this. They'd be going home. (laughs) Exactly. That is so obvious that it's not tied in with the structure of the rest of the movie because Mm. everything else in the movie is such a wonderful example of setup and payoff. Mm. The fact that the dog that they have on the ship plays this game where they throw things in the water for it and it jumps in and fetches them and brings them back. Mm -hmm. That's introduced, it's paid off. The fact that the dog opens doors is introduced in Act 1 and it's paid off in Act 3. There are all these things that are set up and paid off And then in the final part of the movie, this whole thing about flares, which you've never seen before. So they find the raft, and then after they can't see Huey on the life raft anymore, Ray fires a flare into it and sets it on fire whilst (laughs) it's touching their boat. And clearly, this is not a sensible thing to do. I can't imagine Sam Neill's character, John, just standing by her while she sets fire to something that's touching their boat. It's just stupid. But they have to introduce the flare somehow, because otherwise you're not going to know what this thing is that Sam Neill's holding uh-huh. or, or understand what just happened at all. Where did he get the fireworks from? You know, it's... <laughs> It's just such a self-contained piece of shit just stuck on the yeah. end of this movie. It is. And I hate it with a great passion. Oh, it's, it's awful. It's awful. But at the same time, it's hilarious. Oh, yeah. It's great fun. <laughs> because I also like that there's a shot of, of Sam Neill and Nicole Goodman after they've just set fire to Hugh and he's fallen overboard and there's a shot of Nicole and Sam and they just look like they're in this windswept like Michael Bolton music video <laughs> or something <laughs> it's just so cheesy <laughs> they really do it's terrible and she's clutching onto him because he's her hero it's oh, like, fuck you yeah. movie <laughs> that's not the ending of this movie the ending of this movie is Ray's husband clutching onto her because she's the one that found the deeper well of inner resources to overcome this particular trial by fire mm. and rescue them both Ah. Oh. So angry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was just in disbelief, I think. So my my reaction just was just laughter. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. So if we talk about the technical aspects of the movie. We've crossed paths with this particular cinematographer before, Dean Semler, painting his canvas with beautiful sunsets and so on. The film does look incredible, it has to be said. Yeah. Remind me what other film he worked on. (laughs) So he's our friend from Razorback. Oh, of course. Yeah. Some incredible shots. Some very iconic shots as well. I love the shot where John has just set fire to a sinking ship and it just looks incredible Mm. like a moving painting there's raging flames on the sinking ship in the pitch black darkness uh, as a backdrop and Mm. just amazing yes and sam neil's character just standing on a raft giving out this primal roar while he watches this thing burn yes (laughs) his last hope of telling ray where he is there's some fantastic shots in this movie and and as well philip noyce's direction So, for example, the first time that you're introduced to Ray and John after the prologue where you get to see the horrible accident, Mm. the shots are incredibly close. It's incredible close-ups of just their faces when she's waking up and he's talking to her and easing her into the day. It's very intimate. You're immediately put in very close proximity to these characters in the face of their grief. Also, the way that they use eyeline to establish who your audience identification figure is. So in that scene where Ray is having her first set to with Huey and she's confronting him about what actually happened on the Orpheus and he starts shouting at her and it goes from him being 
defensive to him being very threatening mm. very quickly. And you go from a simple shot, traverse shot characters looking at each other and it eventually gets to the point where the camera is in between the two characters and uh, Nicole Kidman is looking just slightly camera right, so she's not looking straight down the barrel of the lens, but Billy Zane is looking straight at you. Mm. So immediately, you are Ray. You are put in her position. And this is exactly the same trick they used in Silence of the Lambs a couple of years later. Clarice Starling was always looking slightly camera right. Hannibal Lecter was always staring directly at you in all of their conversations. And it's really effective in terms of putting you in that character's shoes. Yeah, 100% agree. There were so many close-up shots. And it plays uh, with the theme of, of claustrophobia. Everything was just so close. Mm. How can you get away from someone like that when you can't even physically get away because the boat is so tiny <laughs> and yeah i loved all those close-up shots especially of nicole kidman because her eyes are just like something else <laughs> it's like staring into <laughs> the most serene ocean you've ever seen it's amazing <laughs> but i mean yeah like a lot of close-up shots and and you just really felt that claustrophobia and even on sam neill as well as he's mm. slowly getting submerged by the sinking ship in the water. Uh, I wanted to also say this film was done on location, so it wasn't on a soundstage or some sort of fake ocean or anything. It was actually filmed on the ocean in Great Barrier Reef area, I believe. Yes, no, that's that's what I read, yes. And hats off to them because, as anybody knows, as Steven Spielberg will attest from working on Jaws, working on the ocean is incredible incredibly hard and when you look at some of the shots in the movie like the shot where John is desperately trying to row back to the ship you have this one shot where he's rowing in the foreground and Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane are fighting on the deck of the Saracen and he hits her and she goes down as John goes past and that's all in one shot and you yeah. think how hard was that to coordinate how many times did they have to try that to pull that off oh incredible I mean, I'm just floored by the fact that it was all filmed on an ocean. Mm. Like, far enough from land that you can't see land as well. I mean, obviously, maybe they, they shot it in a certain angle. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always just think all ocean movies are just filmed in some sort of soundstage where they've just made a fake ocean. <laughs> but it, it really wasn't. And it really shows. Like, you felt isolated. You felt like if something went wrong, you were screwed. Yeah, it's a testament to a lot of eighties films. You could feel the elements <laughs> in eighties films mm. because nothing was sugar coated, and also I don't know what it is with eighties movies, but everyone just looks so sweaty and moist all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to talk about this. Billy Zane seems to be automatically damp at all times <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> And I'm not sure that it's entirely realistic. So he's wet when they pull him out of the water. Uh -huh. He's wet when he's explaining what happens. Then he goes to sleep. Then John goes to look at the Orpheus. And even when Billy Zane wakes up and goes to speak to Ray and have that confrontation I just mentioned, he's glistening still. <laughs> Does he never dry? <laughs> I mean, that scene where he wakes up, he's it's literally a waterfall of sweat just cascading down his chest. It's, it's a lot of sweat. Yeah, he must need to rehydrate like a marathon runner if he sweats like that, just lying down. Maybe the idea is just that he runs very hot, I don't know. Oh, maybe, maybe. It is a film set on water, so you, you kind of expect the characters to be wet a, a decent amount of the, of the film. Film. Now it's time for random trivia. Ah, it's trivia time, but uh, I believe, Conrad, you have something very interesting about this film. I do, yes. Surprisingly, this is the second attempt to adapt Charles Williams' book, Dead Calm, into a movie. It has happened before. Oh. And it's a testament again to how difficult it is to make a film at sea. So who did the first attempt? By none other than Orson Welles in the 60s. What? Really? <laughs> yes. So Orson Welles attempted to film the novel... 
as The Deep in 1967 and 1969, self-financed, but was always scuppered by weather and technical difficulties and eventually had to give up in 1973 because the actor playing Huey, Lawrence Harvey, died, sadly, of cancer at the age of 45. Oh, wow. Which made completing the film nigh on impossible. Although rumours have it that it is largely finished, apart from a few shots, but with no sound and the negative has vanished. So we will never see this Orson Welles movie. But yeah, there has been an attempt to make this movie before. Wow. So how old is the novel? Okay, so that's 1963 was when the novel was published. Right. Okay, so it would have been very current for Orson. It was very current for Orson. Oddly enough, it's a sequel to another lesser-known romantic thriller called A Ground by the same author, Charles F. Williams, which was published in 1960. A sequel? Yes, so we could go back and do a prequel to Dead Calm, perhaps, if we get all the actors back and use lots of computer graphics (laughs) to (laughs) make them look 40 years younger or something along those lines. Yeah, I don't know if they'd be up for that. (laughs) Ah, well, and that's our trivia moment. So, shall we talk about the score? Because there actually isn't much score in this film. No, I was surprised. I remembered there being a lot more music in this movie, and I do have an unmentionable bootleg of the score, and it's sort of 30 minutes of different atmospheres and textures. But actually, when you watch the movie... There's a cue at the end of Act 1, there's a cue at the end of Act 2, and there's a profusion of music in the finale, granted. Uh But it's very spare, and I think it's the first work of Graham Ravel, who has gone on to score multiple big blockbusting movies like Tomb Raider and so on. Right. But I think this was his first. I like scores that have kind of restrictions. Mm. It's always great with a full orchestral score and and the sky's the limit. Every instrument known to man. But I like how this score had very limited instruments and instrumentation. So there were kind of three elements of the score that I noticed. There was obviously the breathing so this just intense <laughs> breathing, <laughs> which I, I don't think I've ever heard in the score before. So that was interesting. <laughs> I was wondering if there was a Maori influence there because I believe he is a Kiwi. Oh, amazing. For me, I kind of got the breathing reminded me of kind of modern contemporary theatre. mm I don't know. It was different for sure. And it was often accompanied by percussion. So that added to the very fluid but action-packed vibe. Mm. But then there were also moments where it was synth pads, Mm. these electronic airy pads that just gave it a really spooky atmosphere that I quite liked. Yeah. And then the third element I noticed was in the kind of finale where it had almost like operatic... Like really strange modal... (laughs) Odd vocalizations in there. Yeah, really weird. (laughs) So this is another Fairlight score. So again, another connection back to Razorback. The Fairlight CMI, which was an early sampling instrument. So over in the States, they had the Synclavier or Synclavier. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. But in Australia, you had the Fairlight and it cost the same as a house. It was sort of $35,000. And Graham (laughs) Ravel came up out of the industrial electronic sphere. He was in a group called SPK. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I don't know what that is. No, me neither. But that's what his background was. And he said to his record company, I could make an amazing record if I could have this instrument or whatever. And they, I don't know, they gave him an advance for an album and he bought a house and he bought a Fairlight. And the Fairlight seems to have set him in good stead because he got the job doing Dead Calm. And a lot of it is sampled effects. So you've got sampled percussion, sampled breathing and sampled weird vocalizations that he's playing. And it has a very distinct sound and it's unlike anything else I've ever heard in another movie, it has to be said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had a very eerie quality. It never felt like it resolved 
ever. No. It felt like it was always constantly changing and constantly moving, but not really resolving. And yeah, it was reflective in terms of the story. Like we were just constantly peril after peril after peril after peril. It、mm. made me feel uncomfortable throughout the movie. Yeah. Very sparsely used and very effectively used, I thought. Most of the action scenes were musicless. Yes. And I love that. I love watching an action, tense, thrilling scene that has no music to force feed the tension.、Mm. It forces the actors to actually act <laughs> because that is what carries the scene. And all the action scenes and all the suspenseful scenes in this movie were. Just tremendous to watch. Yes, really tense because there's no music telling you how to feel about them or how they're going to turn out. So, yeah, and also focusing on sound design、um, because, yeah, there's a lot of bashing <laughs> down doors in this movie. <laughs> yeah, lots of creaking and sloshing. And... I loved it. d e a d calm. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. So, listeners, you're in for a treat. It's that time when we nominate some of our favourite or least favourite parts of the movie in a variety of useless categories. Kicking off, as always, with favourite quote Dan, do you have a favourite line of dialogue from Dead Calm? I want to hear your favourite line first. This film is so sparse in terms of dialogue. There wasn't a lot to choose from, but I did go for Huey's rant to Ray, and I quite liked his line. They tried to suck the light out of me, if you can possibly grasp that concept. <laughs> his crazy rant, I thought, was pretty memorable, but I couldn't think of anything else. How about you? Yeah, I mean, that's why I wanted to hear your nomination first, because I couldn't come up with anything either. There wasn't anything hugely memorable or iconic. I'm not, it's not to say the dialogue was bad. But I, I felt like the dialogue was more functional rather than trying to be、mm. a signature line. So, yeah, I couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. So let's move swiftly on to hair and costume. And again, we're limited in choice because we've only got three humans to look at. Do you have a favorite piece of wardrobe in this movie? Well, I mean, I think I would say it goes without saying that Nicole Kidman, with her just perfect red ringlet, Curls、uh, in、mm. any situation, whether she was wet or dry or woken up, just perfect <laughs> every single time. And yeah, just very <laughs> 80s as well. Huge and perfect ringlets. Yes, I was going to say that too. And I was going to call it a frizzy perm, but it's not a perm actually. It's natural curls. That's the way her hair is naturally, or at least it was. She made headlines in 2017 when she claimed that she has straightened and ironed and tortured her curls so much that she has, quote, tortured them to death, that they've gone,、oh. that she can't get them back. Very sad. My wife was very jealous of her hair in this movie. But my wife also has, has curly hair, so. <laughs> but it never looks like that. Yeah. Sorry, Hannah. <laughs> no, it's pretty spectacular, it has to be said. So, speaking of frizzy perms, most 80s thing in this movie, did you have an 80s thing? I think it has to be the tape cassette Walkman that Billy Zane has. <laughs> I mean, I had one of those growing up, and I think I did actually use a tape Walkman well into my 20s, so into the mid 2000s, I think.、Mm. Uh, I think I just liked how indestructible tapes were. You could just throw them in your bag and they wouldn't get damaged. Obviously, over time, the tape would wear down and playback got really warpy,、mm. but they weren't as fragile as CDs, so I just liked <laughs> having tapes. Yes. And you could do mixtapes, of course, as well for your friends. Exactly. Great. Or just record the radio, which is what I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, it was yuppies in pastels and chinos on a yacht. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was. Fair call. Pretty 80s. I was sort of expecting Duran Duran to go by in the other direction <laughs> doing a music video. <laughs> 
And I was reading that apparently there's a whole genre of music called yacht rock. Is there? Apparently. What does that sound like? The description I've read of it suggests that it's sort of soft rock played by people having yacht parties. So uh-huh. Footloose, The Eagles, Hall & Oates, Kenny Loggins kind of, yeah. Okay, so something I would probably <laughs> never listen to because I get incredibly seasick. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. So, next category, favourite scene, Conrad. I think it has to be the end of Act 1. I think it is so tightly wound, that whole climax with John trying to get back to the boat, Ray fighting with Huey on the boat, and there are some great shots in that scene, like the scene where mm-hmm. Ray is trying to turn the boat around and get back to John, and she's looking at him through the binoculars and wondering why he's rowing back with such wild abandon and signalling to her. And in that shot, Huey pops up through a hatch in the deck and gets in between her and John to signal that she's to intervene and get in between them. And that difficult to coordinate shot where John goes past and they're fighting on deck as he's rowing past and yeah I just it's such a finely tooled piece of action suspense and it closes out the first part of the movie brilliantly I thought it was great ah amazing amazing scene I think mine is uh, I think it's the end of act two Mm. so the scene where Ray manages to finally overpower Huey and it's actually quite complex there's a lot going on in that very short span of time They've just had sex, and Ray tricks Huey into drinking a drugged cocktail. She tries to use a shotgun against him, but he overpowers her, throws her to the ground, but then the drugs kick in, and he misses the two shots. The storm hits, and they're both thrown to the ground, as well as a harpoon gun, which Ray grabs, runs to another room, closing the door behind her. Huey tries to barge through the door. Ray shoots the door twice with the harpoon gun, the second seemingly hitting Huey because there's blood dripping from the harpoon in the door. She opens it. Huey lunges at her, tries to choke her, but then the drugs take full effect and he finally passes out. The door closes behind Ray and it's revealed that she's accidentally shot her dog, which is horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. The poor dog. And that all happens in a mere five minutes. Mm. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, it's pretty full on. Yeah, it's just well choreographed, well shot, believable action. You really are rooting for Ray in the scene. It is a great scene, and I think it's the reason why Philip Noyce quickly became known as a director for thrillers, because he went on to do Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, so two of the Jack Ryan movies, and he became known for that. You only have to look at those two scenes to see why. Yeah. Really great. Okay, so thriller cliche. Did you have a thriller horror cliche for this movie? I mean, I think it's it's the start of the film. I can't even count the amount of horror and thriller movies that start off with some sort of traumatic car accident. Just hundreds, <laughs> right. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And it's always followed as well by a nightmare. So waking up, remembering this traumatic event. <laughs> Which happens in this film as well, with Ray waking up and screaming. Yes, that's very true. I hadn't thought of that. That's very true. (laughs) Yep. Well, mine was the dog gets it. Uh, Because family pets do not do well in psychological thrillers, do they? Let's be honest. That's true. That's very true. Ever since... Glenn Close boiled the bunny in Fatal Attraction in 1987 and coined a phrase even for an overly possessive woman. After that, every seemingly helpless psycho who invades the nice but flawed middle-class family home always kills a family pet (laughs) in the second act at some point. But I suppose this film does have to get kudos for it being Ray who actually kills the dog accidentally. And for you not really realising that that's what's happened at that point. I think it works quite well. It's also incredibly shocking as well because she's just overcome Huey as well. So you feel all happy and then the door slowly closes and it's just an impaled bloody (laughs) dog on the door. (laughs) Yeah. 
And a good bit of misdirection on the sound design too, because what you hear is just a muffled that's true. And you don't know whether it's a human or a dog. And then, lo and behold, she has harpooned her dog mm. when it tried to open the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not great. <laughs> Poor dog. Yes, so effect. Did you have a favourite effect in this movie? Uh, I kind of chuckled a little bit at the 80s lightning because it was clearly just an optical effect. They'd just oh. drawn it on. <laughs> Yeah. I, I kind of uh, almost reminiscent of Fantasia or something. It just didn't look right at all. But um, it's not really an effect, but I really <laughs> like the burning ship scene. Well, it's a practical effect because it's a they completely rebuilt a mock version of the Orpheus that they could burn. So That's true, that's yeah. true. Yeah, love that scene. And how about you, Conrad? For me, I think it's um, pr- a bit grisly of me, but I do like the toddler flying through the windscreen in the traumatic car accident at the beginning yeah because it doesn't look like a dummy it's backlit that's the thing Uh and it's just sort of wispy toddler hair and yeah very disturbing i mean that scene was was really visceral Mm. because normally when you see a car accident in movies it's from the exterior so you just see the car flip and bounce around and explode but this was inside the car yeah it's nasty stuff and i think it's one of the first times that had been done and philip noyce got the idea from watching some australian safety board test (laughs) videos (laughs) (laughs) where they would put a camera inside the car and put dummies in the car the old crash test dummies to see yeah he saw some of that footage and thought hey why don't i do that in my movie so that's why you end up with a first person direct experience of what that would actually be like which is not nice no no did not look nice (laughs) so we have uh, talked about uh sound design did you have a favorite sound design moment in this yeah so i'm harking back again to the uh the ship being on fire um so he sets on fire and there's a series of explosions that you expect from anything being set on fire in a movie (laughs) a few fireballs as well but i can hear a sound in there that sounds like an elephant or some sort of (laughs) like a baboon or something some sort of animal has been mixed in there because i don't know i don't know what it is exactly but i love that sound (laughs) Because famously Spielberg did that on his movie Duel where the tanker truck was finally destroyed Uh that had menaced the main character all the way through the movie. Yeah, I think he put like a Godzilla roar on it as it rolled Ah, down the hill. Amazing. (laughs) I love it. How was your favourite sound? It's a simple detail, but it was just the rhythmic squeaking of the Orpheus's engine, which was a huh. really good shorthand for me because you a you know it's broken and it sounds like it's sort of wheezing and struggling and it's not going to last very long. But it also meant that at any given moment in the film, you knew which boat you were on. Right, you had a sonic cue. Yeah, they used you knew exactly where you were. It was very good at locating you and also giving you that constant tension in the back of your mind that this ship is not well. <laughs> so yeah. I liked mm. it. Yeah, ingenious. So finally, our favourite funniest moment. I think I have an idea what yours is, Dan, but go for it. I mean, it's obvious. Uh, the last ridiculous scene where Huey's head is just a, a ball of fireworks. It's so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> It really is, yeah. I, he did not need to go up like a Roman candle at the end of the no. movie. This is crazy. <laughs> oh, for me, it was um, a scene where you're—I think you're meant to laugh—which is after the very tense scene where Ray has figured out how to slow down the ship because at that point she's just trying to give John time to catch up to them. Mm-hmm. She takes this key out of the engine and then throws it overboard. But then the dog spots it and jumps in the water and retrieves it for her. (laughs) And Huey's on deck, he's seen what she's done and he's sort of calling to the dog, come on, bring it aboard. And she's shouting, no, drop it, drop it. (laughs) I was in fits. I'm not sure you're supposed to be, but I was in hysterics during that scene. Yeah, me too. Some great moments. And that's our Moobly's. Yay!
Welcome back, and it's that nail-biting time when we find out the final verdict. Is this film going to be rescued into the arms of a waiting Nicole Kidman, or is it going to have a flare shot into its face and blown up and thrown <laughs> into the sea to be forgotten forever? Dan, I'm sure everyone is completely on the edge of their seat waiting oh. to find out whether you love this movie or not. <laughs> What's your verdict? Ah, uh, well, uh, it's pretty obvious. I have a tremendous amount of praise for this film. Uh, it's so resourceful. I've said that word a lot, but it really is. It uses very limited elements and actors, characters, story, but it does everything amazingly well. Mm -hmm. I was so, so enthralled from start to finish in this movie. I, I would have to say, out of all the films that we've covered, this was the most gripping mm. the outcome and and the payoff at the end not the real end but the <laughs> the actual ending that should have been was so <laughs> immensely satisfying mm. and it was great to see a horror thriller where the female character wasn't completely stupid as well there are so many mm. horrors where it's just like don't do that don't do that. Don't go there. <laughs> what are you doing now? He's behind you. But in this film, it, it didn't do any of those cliches. And uh, yeah, no. Ray was such an engaging character. It's so great in the 80s to see a woman who is intelligent and, uh, to use your word, resourceful and mm -hmm. to come out on top and even rescue her man. I think it's fantastic to see. So I'm assuming you like this film too. <laughs> I do. And I think probably as well as all the things that you've mentioned, the thing that really struck me is just what a great example of tight plotting this movie is. It has a solid three-act structure. Everything that is set up in Act 1 comes back to be paid off in Act 3. It's just such a great example of lean, effective writing. And it just puts so many films that I see now to shame. Mm. This is a really good, exciting thrill ride of a movie. And if the credits rolled after Act 3, <laughs> it would, I think, be a pretty perfect movie. I would agree. But yes, it's slightly marred by the moustache that Hollywood painted on the end of it. But <laughs> it's still, I think, worth everybody's time to check this out. If you haven't seen it for a long while or if you have never seen it, I would definitely recommend you give this one a go, especially if you're a fan of Nicole Kidman, because you can see where she came from. Mm. You can see every reason why she is the powerhouse that she is, because she is incredible in this film at the age of 19 stroke 20. Mm. So Yes, yes. I mean, I would also say that this film is enjoyable for people that don't know anything about cinema, mm. but it's incredibly enjoyable for someone that is studying film or wants to be a filmmaker because this is mm. a, a, the perfect example of how a film should be structured, filmed, mm. scored. All of those yes. elements come together so perfectly well in this movie. I can't, I can't praise this film enough. It's, it's, it's just a great film. It really is. Yes. So I think we're letting it go. <laughs> yes. Let's give it that life raft and let it go. Sail away into Dean Semler's beautiful sunset. Gorgeous. <laughs> well, what a lovely episode that was. Mm, yeah, agreed. So what are we discussing next episode? Well, we've been indulging ourselves for the last couple of episodes uh, so I thought it was about time we went for a listener's choice. Oh, get to spin that uh, oubliette roulette again. We do. So wheel it out from the cupboard. Just a sec. <laughs> okay, dust it off and give it a spin there, Dan. All right, here we go. Whoa. It's a bit rickety. Where did you find this thing? Bit of cost-cutting, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and it is... Ooh. Disturbing behaviour. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that film. It's from your favourite decade. Oh, it's the 90s. <laughs> oh, no. 
I know nothing about this movie. This was suggested to us by a user called Redmar61. Ah, Mr. Antonio. So... According to Wikipedia, Disturbing Behaviour is a 1998 American science fiction horror film starring James Marsden, Katie Holmes and Nick Stahl. Yes, all the greats. Yeah. (laughs) It's directed by David Nutter, who's an X-Files alumni, so it's very much in the 90s X-Files zeitgeist. Well, I have never actually seen this movie either, but it was always on TV, and I just never sat down and watched the whole thing. Right. Uh, It's going to be interesting watching a 90s horror as well, because I have revisited some recently, and they do not hold up. No? (laughs) (laughs) No. We will see. So what do you think of the film that we are faced with? What do you think of Dead Calm and our verdict? We would love to hear from you. We are Movie Oubliette on all social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And we are movie.oubliette at gmail.com if you want to email us. Mm, We always love your comments and feedback and your ratings and reviews. So give us five stars on Apple Podcast or whatever other podcast platform you are using. It's the least you can do if you've enjoyed the show, I think, to be honest. Just get your mum to rate and review us as well while you're at it. Yeah. While she's not looking, just log into her phone and subscribe. That's ideal. As always, it was great to be here and watch another movie with you, Dan. Ah, always a pleasure. And listeners out there, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie Juliet. I want fresh melons, some angel hair pasta, some Vegemite, Tim Tams, and oh god, are you getting blood in my hair?